from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling from The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 9th. Today, a conversation with the museum director about curating history in a politicized moment. Plus, why air travel feels worse than ever. What do you think it is about you that makes you someone who has that feeling of excitement when you're able to read somebody's diary or see a collection of records that have been unearthed? I think it's really an experience of understanding other people and what their humanity is. Kevin Young is the new director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. He started this job in January, but he has had this long career in curation. Kevin has worked with archives focused on the African American experience. He's also a poet. And as museums are opening back up, we wanted to talk to him about what it means to go to a museum and to interact directly with history. When you see someone's uh, handwriting, when you see someone's thoughts in sometimes their raw form, notes and drafts, you learn a lot about them that you might not otherwise. Now at the museum, I see the ways that something like Harriet Tubman's handkerchief, which we've newly put on display, I just think about what that experienced, the ways that it was a witness in a way to tears and sweat, no less, and no doubt that it saw a lot of the humanity that Tubman reminds us of. So her testimony and the testimony of this handkerchief to me are very much tied. We also have her hymnal with her name inscribed in it in her hand. And you think about what that hymnal saw that she carried with her. This is a hymnal, a pocket hymnal she would carry. And I just think about that kind of fierce survivability, which is exactly what I think Tubman inspires in us, and that the objects themselves tell that story as well. How can you not fall in love with that? You know, I think a lot of people have that that feeling that you're describing of seeing something like Harriet Tubman's hymnal and feeling the very visceral power of being in the room with that. But I don't think a lot of people think about the process of getting that hymnal to a museum and on display in the way that it is. And I guess a lot of that is the job of a museum director. So can you talk to me a little bit about the job itself and what your role is in bringing these objects to people in a way that is powerful? Being a museum director is uh, a real privilege because you get to not only see some of this material firsthand and, and sometimes behind the scenes, but you get to think about the big picture of how Americans and visitors from all over get to experience, in this case, Black culture and African American culture as central to the American experience and telling that story. We do everything from thinking about how are we going to mark Juneteenth, which just passed us. And we did plans and we had events. And then suddenly it's a national holiday. And I think that's the kind of 
bigger picture that museum directors have to think about, but they also have to think about moments like we're in where, you know, COVID changed the workplace, it changed the work we do, but also changed how we reach out to audiences. Now, fortunately, in the case of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, we've been a digital museum since our start. And so the goal, I think, is is not just to be online and, and have people be able to access you from afar, say, but also to bring to life that feeling of what it's like to be in the museum because it's a very special space. And I think that's the goal of not just the director, but everyone who works in our museum, everyone who's thinking about the online space and, and digital. How do we reach people where they live, but also bring them home when they visit us? You know, it feels like we're at this moment as a country where so many of us are reassessing history and the history that we learn, the history that we don't learn, certainly the history that is told as a country. And I think for many of us, uh, even in our own lives, like wondering why weren't we taught the things that we weren't taught in elementary school? Why didn't we learn about Tulsa? Why didn't we learn about Emmett Till? And I'm wondering what role you think the museum plays in kind of furthering that reassessment of our national history. Well, I think the museum has shown that it's central to understanding that broad history, the deep history of this nation. We've been telling that story, like I said, since we were first conceived. And part of our story is the story that you're alluding to about, you know, the stories that we wouldn't tell. We were first proposed as a museum in 1915, 50 years after the end of the Civil War, and it took over 100 years for it to happen. And that's really important to keep in mind. And recently I wrote about we can't just tell history, but we also tell about how we tell about history. We have to think about how history is told and how it isn't told. And I think we're at the forefront of helping people understand that. we have a space in the museum about Tulsa, which the when I visited years ago was the first time I saw in depth the Tulsa massacre and and its reckoning with that history. I think Tulsa and is a great example of how somber the experience of being at your museum can be. But you've also talked about trying to bring joy into the experience of being at this museum, at any museum. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you bring joy and pleasure into a museum? I I think we do it in different ways, and there's something for everyone in that regard. Juneteenth itself was something we tried to talk about in different ways, not just as a commemoration of the day two and a half years later that the enslaved in Texas learned about the emancipation, but also the ways that we have made way out of no way, we've made lemonade and a lot of red drink and barbecue around these signs of celebrations. And I think that's really important. We talked with Adrian Miller, who has written beautifully about Black barbecue and its origins. And one of the stories we end up talking about is how he came across and and amplifies the story of a Black woman uh, barbecue pit master who governed other people, uh, white folks that she taught and oversaw barbecue traditions and may indeed have bought her own freedom with the barbecue she sold and made. I mean, that's the kind of story that I think the complexity of our museum and our programming and our spaces can provide. I would love to hear more about how you think your background as a poet can also contribute to your role as a museum director. 
Well, I think as poets, we make connections. We draw connections between things that sometimes don't seem like they're similar. We say, this is like that. We make metaphors. In many ways, we make meaning, which is, I think, also what a museum does. And I think that that quality of not just saying something is like something, but something is something else is really important. For instance, we have the earliest known portrait of Harriet Tubman. It's a remarkable image of her sort of looking into the camera, and suddenly we see her young and vibrant, and there's something about that look. But I also connect to a piece that we're showing this fall, which is Amy Sherald's portrait of Breonna Taylor. And you might have seen it from the cover of Vanity Fair magazine, but it's also going to be in our museum. And there's something really powerful of, you know, they're not going to be next to each other, but they're going to be in the same house. So this is a time when I think many Americans are finally able to go back to a museum. And I know a lot of people are hoping to go to your museum. And I know from friends and family members that getting tickets is really difficult and sometimes feels impossible because we all want to go, even for those of us who've been there four or five or six times before. But for folks who either can't get tickets or don't live in D.C. and um, are hoping to experience other museums out there in the world, world, I guess, what would your advice be for people who are going to their first museum after the pandemic? You know, I'm always reminded that there's great local museums in every municipality and county in in this great country. So, you know, please support your local museums, uh, especially if you can't make it to ours. But there's also the ways that I think a museum is a way of connecting with these stories and these objects. And what I see is a real change in museum culture and, and that museums are starting to understand their public charge in a whole new way. When I started in archives, there was very much a sense that we got to protect this material at all uh, costs. And, you know, my experience and my wish, and I think the field has shifted in this way too, was for as many people as possible to know about it and connect with it. If you have this wonderful object, why wouldn't you want more people to see it? And one of the great things about the museum is that you can come in and To me, it's your museum. You are seeing the things we're keeping safe for eternity for you uh, and for you to experience, young or old, uh, no matter what. And I I think that's so shaping. And especially because if you think back, when we set out to make the museum, there was a sense like maybe there wouldn't be that much to put in it. Uh, And now, you know, we have to rotate out things and still have this vast amount of material that speaks to the story and the intimate story. And what we found is that people in their attics, in their houses, in their Bibles, in their homes, and in their hearts were keeping this material safe, waiting for the day when not just their family members could see it, when not just their community could see it, but everyone could see it. And that caretaking, that stewardship across the centuries, and I'm talking centuries, it means so much, and it's very much at the heart of what we do. It shapes our mission, it shapes our future, uh, and it shapes where we need to go. Kevin Young is the director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. 
This fall is the museum's fifth anniversary, and to mark the occasion, they will have a new exhibit called Make Good the Promises. It's about the story of reconstruction after slavery ended. For a link to the museum's website, check out the show notes or go to postreports.com. And now, one more thing from travel reporter Natalie Compton and producer Sappy Robinson. So, Natalie, I am really interested to talk to you because actually last week I had a pretty terrible flying experience. My flight was delayed more than 10 hours and I had to try to sleep in the airport. But from talking with friends and going on social media, I've realized that these major delays and cancellations are problems that we're seeing all over the country, right? Yes, unfortunately, this is an experience that a lot of people are having. Sabi talked to Natalie to ask her about why so many people are experiencing flight delays and cancellations. American Airlines made headlines for canceling 1% of their upcoming flights. Southwest had to cancel hundreds of flights, delay thousands. And it's not just a problem with those two airlines. I've been talking to people who have had horrible experiences on just about every airline. So it really doesn't matter who you're flying with. You can expect to run into some pretty serious experiences at the airport that you want to be prepared for. And I'm just curious, what are some of the reasons for why this is happening? So the issues are what industry experts are calling a perfect storm. There is a labor shortage across the travel industry. And what is particularly bad for the airline industry is that you can't just rehire some of these positions quickly to meet the demand. All of these positions that they need from mechanics to pilots to flight attendants, all of those jobs take a lot of training. So the airlines don't have enough staff to meet the demand of summer travel right now. This is definitely an issue that has to do with the pandemic because a lot of these people who are missing from the airline industry would have been working still if they hadn't been furloughed during the pandemic or let go. A lot of people sought employment in different industries. A lot of pilots during the pandemic were encouraged to retire. Some people have not come back yet if they were intending to come back. And an issue there as well is that it takes pilots a long time to train again to get ready to fly. So it can take up to a year to get somebody back. That is a problem if right now we need as many pilots as possible and we just don't have enough to fly the planes. The other issue is summer storms. So the bad weather combined with not having enough staff is causing a lot of airlines to cancel, reschedule, and delay tons of flights. So this is something impacting a lot of people right now. Do you think we can expect these delays through the summer? Like, how long do you think it will take for airlines to get back to normal operations? The industry experts that I've spoken to have said we shouldn't expect this to clear up anytime soon, unfortunately. The good news is the majority of flights taking off right now are going according to schedule. Everything's working, but the small percentage of these things that are going haywire are very, very chaotic and people are spending 10 hours, 12 hours, 16 hours trying to get to their places or not being able to go at all. I've heard countless stories of missed weddings, missed sporting events, 
people getting stuck without their luggage for a long time. What people have also said is, is maybe by the end of the year, things could be different as the demand might drop off when the fall hits. Maybe it won't be so chaotic. Maybe airlines will be able to catch up. But this is something that people should expect for the rest of the summer. Hmm. Thinking that this is going to be a problem that might persist for a while, what are some of the ways that I can avoid being in a situation where I'm having to wait at the airport for a long time or even have to find a new flight? Some of it is just going to be out of your control. But tips that you could take to heart right now, booking flights as early as you can in the day is something that experts have told me is a good move right now. If anything goes wrong with your flight, you have more options to fix it throughout the day than if you have a later flight, then there's nothing going out until the next day. Booking direct flights is a good idea right now because the less flights that you have to deal with, the better. And something else people have been telling me is that downloading an airline's app is very helpful right now. For whatever reason, sometimes airlines won't send you a text message if you're having a delay or a cancellation, but sometimes that information comes through on the app. I think right now a lot of people are very angry at the airline industry, which I completely understand. They received a ton of money during the pandemic to stay afloat. You're paying them for a service that you're not getting or getting in a really horrific way. But when you are dealing with this stuff, the people at the airport, the people online for customer service, these are not the people to voice your full wrath toward because they are just the messenger. It is not their fault that there are not enough staff. They're not the people in charge. So when you go to flight attendants, when you go to gate agents, when you're talking to somebody on customer service, just remember that's a human being on the other line. They're dealing with thousands of angry people every day. Just show them a little kindness, show them a little grace and go to the airport with patience because we could all use more of that at the airport these days. Natalie Compton is a reporter for the Post travel blog, By the Way. Sabby Robinson produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Mohammed. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svarnovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Our intern is Corey Suzuki. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 